HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd, broadcasting live on the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It's getting chilly here in New York, and as the weather starts to change, got us thinking about summer versus winter in terms of animal feed and how the seasonal changes in diet can affect the cheese. With that in mind, we have a really special episode today. I'm happy to have Matteo Keeler on the line from Greensboro, Vermont. Thanks so much for coming on, Matteo. Awesome. Great to be here. Yeah, man. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, Matteo and his brother Andy are the proprietors of Jasper Hill Farm and the sellers at Jasper Hill, uh, who produce and age some of America's modern classic and multiple award-winning cheeses like Moses Sleeper, Bailey Hazen Blue, Harbison, and Winamere. Um, These guys have managed to change the landscape of artisan cheesemaking in the U.S., and they continue to innovate while maintaining a focus on tradition and quality. Today we're going to talk a bit about some of those innovations, but first, Mateo, I wanted to like debunk some myths about summer versus winter feed and what that means for the cheese we see at different times of the year. I think most people tuning in know that what the animals are eating matter in terms of what the cheese is going to taste like, and I think we all imagine cows from an artisan dairy such as your own grazing on these endless fields of grass in the summertime and then perhaps eating hay in the wintertime, and this word grass or this term grass-fed is definitely one of those buzz terms that people know and ask for. But maybe if you could summarize some of the main takeaway points in like how a cow's diet changes over the year and what that means for the cheese, you know, what would those points be? Sure. Well, every um, every cheese is unique. It's uh, essentially, um, you know, some of uh, the practices on a farm um, that goes for, you know, uh, commodity milk, um, and kind of industrial uh, farming to you know alpine um, like alpage type uh, production up in um, in Switzerland, France, and in Italy. And now we uh, we fall somewhere um, in in uh, in the midst of all that. You know, we milk forty five cows yep. uh, in our on our farm in Greensboro, and um, 
we use an intensive rotational grazing um, approach uh, through the spring and summer months and into the early uh, fall. At this point, you know, up here in northern Vermont, the grass has stopped growing. Um, we've had uh, we've had some snow up here already, yeah, and sure. <laughs> um, the cows are the cows are in the barn uh, for um, for the the rest of the winter, and so. You know, our grazing uh, period is quite short, and um, we get amazing uh, growth through, you know, June, July. Um, by the end of August, the grass is starting to slow down. September uh, can really be marginal, and our season um, on, on grass is over in um, uh, by the end of September, early October, depending on the weather. Um, so, you know, at that point, uh, our cows are going in, and um, they're fed a, uh, a ration of dry hay, um, which uh, uh, we're producing um, here in, in uh, the neighborhood. And um, that, uh, that dry hay is um, about as good a feed for cheese making, particularly if you're making raw milk cheese um, as you can get um, and you know we'll we'll talk about some microbiology uh, here in in a little while but um, our ration consists of dry hay uh, with some supplemental grain um, you know we don't feed any uh, corn silage okay. um, and uh, we don't feed any fermented feed so uh, you know what? What we find is that whether a cow is out on pasture um, or eating hay in a barn, um, there is some uh, supplemental energy required, and and that's that's why we're we're feeding uh, some uh, limited amounts of grain is basically to help um, the cow metabolize the protein and convert those proteins into uh, into milk proteins. Um, that requires some energy, and it it can be very difficult for a dairy cow to do that efficiently without a little grain. What's your biggest challenge? You know, is when when you transition from the pasture to uh, to the hay. Um, you know, honestly, the I think the biggest uh, challenges we face are uh, on uh, on the shoulder seasons and in the in the midst of summer because. Uh, you know, making cheese on pasture is very complicated in that you're dealing, uh, you're inserting a lot of um, different complexity. You've got weather. Um, you've got it's it's very hard to measure uh, what a cow's like dry matter intake might be. So um, ultimately, you know, grass is 90% water. Right, and um, the quality of the forage out in the pasture can change a lot uh, over the course of the season. And so, you know, managing um, the nutrition uh, of uh, of a cow that's you know out loose in the field and um, maybe feeling hot um, or and bothered, um, uh, hot and bothered. His, his, is in the middle of the summer, um, or if you get a lot of rain, um, you know she might um, she might be eating eating feed that uh, where the nutrients have been like leached out of of the plant just because of the uh, the amount of rain. For instance, in uh, June uh, this year, we got 18 inches of rain up here uh, in the month of June. Jesus. Um, 
And and so, you know, uh, when a cow is in the barn, you can really manage, um, you know, her intake carefully. And, you know, essentially we have a herd of hand-fed cows at, at Jasper Hill. That's not possible when they're out on pasture. They're they're out there picking and choosing what, what they're going to eat. And you have, like, the weather um, and uh, the quality of the grass in different uh, paddocks or different parts of the farm um, is, is different as well. And so... Um, you know, it, it gets a lot more complicated to turn that milk into cheese because you have a raw material that's a little different every day. So what's the real benefit of the grass then? I mean, is it in the flavor? Is it in the end product? I mean, it's, it's not, there's a lot of stuff going on there and a lot of variables. Um, yeah, the, so there's, uh, there's uh, uh, a benefit um, in the cost. You know, um, the cow's out there feeding herself, right? Sure. So, uh, you know, the cost of, of that uh, of that feed is, it, that's as, as efficient as you can get, is sending a cow out to feed herself. Makes sense. Right? Um, um, there are, uh, you know, the microbiology of uh, milk produced on pasture is, is slightly different. So you're going to um, have... Uh, uh, cheeses that may have some uh, like a different diversity of species that you might not find in the barn as cows lay down out in the pasture. Uh, they're picking up microbes and transporting them back to the barn. Uh, so uh, summer summer cheeses, and uh, you see this uh, specifically with um, you know uh, like alpine type cheeses. Um, generally has more complexity, and that complexity is really linked to uh, microbial, the diversity of my, the microbial ecology of that raw milk. Um, and, of course, there's a color. You know, grass... It's all uh, yellow and buttery. Yeah, it's full of beta-carotenes, and, and uh, the color of the cheese changes uh, pretty radically, and particularly in that first flush of spring grass. So... Um, those are all um, interesting uh, contributors. Uh, you know, I would say that um, you have to be a better cheesemaker to make cheese on grass, and um, you're going to need to be able to celebrate some um, diversity, both in the, like the flavor uh, and textural uh, characteristics of, of a cheese, because uh, you're dealing with a raw material that isn't static. Right, sure. it's changing every day. Sure, and um, it's always whenever I think of alpine cheeses, I always think of all of those flowers, you know, or like that, you know, those classic commercials or what of like the yeah. you know the Ricola commercials and all that. And I've been lucky enough to be, be up there. But is it is it the microbes that are it? Do those flowers? Is all the all of those those crazy that's crazy fauna up there? Is that is that affecting the flavor? or Is it all microbial activity, or is it both? Uh, no, I would say it's definitely a combination of both. There's an interesting study that was done in um, um, in Sicily uh, a few years ago, where they uh, took a uh, um, an instrument, a sniffer, uh, that was able to detect um, you know aromas in cheese, and they actually were able to. Um, uh, tie the aromas that they were finding in these raw milk cheeses back to specific plants that uh, the awesome. cows were were feeding on in, in the pasture. So there is um, an aromatic uh, and sensory contribution from uh, from the plants uh, that are uh, you know being consumed by animals in, on pasture. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, but then there's also the microbiology, and you know that's the great, the an amazing thing about cheeses is the sum of so many different complex systems. Um, and ultimately, you know that's that's why uh, you know cheeses made here, there, and everywhere have their own unique um, character. Yeah. Uh, well, but you know, one of the things that that I, I wanted to just say is that you know, uh, specifically with raw milk cheese. You know, um, you you can't expect the cheese to be like uh, exactly the way you had it last. Certainly, right? you know it's like there's a vintage in, in a sense. Yeah, and um, you know every, every day we have a vintage through our great through the grazing season. So I always like to uh, try and celebrate, um, you know, the diversity that you can find within uh, a, a specific cheese. Uh, over the course of a season, right? Because you want it, you want it to be unique within a certain set of parameters, and you control the those parameters by making sure the science is proper, and you celebrate the the nuances in like what those animals were eating and how and how it was. Correct? I mean, is that exactly? Yeah, yeah exactly. And you know, every now and then um, we get what we we call a, a snowflake. Sure. You know, it's it's like a, a cheese. It might be like a Bailey. It looks like a Bailey. Uh, the texture might be like the way you would expect a Bailey uh, to taste, but the flavor profile is just you know it's just different. It's it's different, and and uh, that's that's really exciting for us when we can uh, like actually find batches of cheese within our range that like really stand out as being uh, unique and uh, we can celebrate uh, them and the raw milk that they're, that they're made from. Yeah, and as a cheesemonger, we love those like windfall days too. You know, when you open up that, that cheese and you think you know what it is and it's just a little bit different. Uh, when it comes all the way down to the customers, it gets challenging sometimes because you sell them something and you're so jazzed about it because it's got that unique quality and then it's gone. You know, And to explain to them that it's always going to be different. Some people get it and some people don't, but... I mean that's why we we do what we do, man. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. So you mentioned um, you set you use in the winter um, and uh, after you pass that shoulder of um, of transition, you use uh, dry hay versus uh, fermented hay. Um, and how you you uh, just constructed a new hay dryer up there, right? And uh, yeah, that's right. So we uh, we we built a facility to to dry. Um, all our forages, um, and for, uh, basically, you know, uh, we're we're now managing two farms. We've got Jasper Hill Farm, and we've got Andersonville Farm, which is uh, up the road from us, about uh, eight miles. And we're milking um, about 150 cows there. And we transitioned that farm um, off away from silage uh, and corn silage. Um, to uh, dry hay, so the, those cows are all being um, fed a dry ration as well. And uh, this facility uh, is based on, um, you know, uh, uh, an approach that we saw in uh, Reggio Emilia. Um, so Parmigiano Reggiano is produced uh, from uh, cows, milk from cows that have only uh, eaten dry. Uh, forages as well. Why dry? Um, Why is that important? Um, so, 
uh, fermented feeds like uh, silage and, you know, the like marshmallow bales and yeah. that you can put uh, bales in tubes and you can uh, chop it and put it in bunks. Silage, whether it's made from grass or, or corn. A lot of corn I've um, seen. Is, uh, is fermented. And uh, that fermentation um, involves a lot of microbes. Um, and depending on the type of cheese that you're making, um, you know, that those microbes can cause uh, all kinds of mayhem. Um, you know, so a lot of uh, hard-cooked pressed cheeses specifically, um, you know, uh, Gruyere, Comte, uh, Parmigiano-Reggiano, uh, prohibit the use of silage because they, uh, uh, silage tends to have a lot of uh, Clostridium uh, tyrobutyricum. So butyrics are a class of microbes that are, are gas formers, um, and you can have incredibly small number of spores that uh, can survive pasteurization even, and then uh, begin to grow in the cheese uh, when the cheese is you know four, five, six months old, and that cheese will just blow up like a basketball. I've seen have that blitz. Yeah, you'll start to have, like, splits yeah. and cracks in the cheese. And um, uh, these butyrics produce uh, hydrogen sulfide gas. Um, so it smells like uh, farts and farts, kind man. of generally uh, unpleasant, uh, you know, uh, aroma <laughs> profile there. Fart profile. That's, uh, yeah. that's not, <laughs> no one wants the fart profile. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but, you know, uh, there are also food safety uh, considerations. Uh, right. You know, you get uh, a lot of listeria that uh, grows Ooh. in silage. It's, uh, it's a moist, uh, you know, nutrient-rich uh, environment. And, um, you know, uh, the microbiology in raw milk is the sum of the practices on a farm. So how you bed your cows, how you feed your cows, how you milk them, what your protocols are, how you're cleaning uh, protocols, your, the type of equipment, the design of your facility, all contribute to the microbial ecology in your raw milk. And changing uh, any one of those things can really alter uh, a community. Um, and so, you know, when, when you shift uh, the feeding regimen uh, from fermented feed to dry hay, you really alter the microbial ecology in, in the milk. And uh, so, you know, for us, uh, feeding dry hay is really about uh, ensuring that uh, we have safe, delicious milk with uh, or the right kind of mix of microbes that can contribute uh, to the kinds of qualities we want to see in our cheeses. Yeah, it seems so, I mean, to layman like me, it seems like, you know, more moisture you lends itself towards a more anaerobic environment, less, more, more water, less oxygen, and a bad, yeah, I mean, it's, Unfortunately, I understand it from my own gross perspective, you know. But but I, but but I get what you're what you're saying. And uh, there's got to be a cost there. I mean, you you know, you say the hay itself is expensive in comparison to letting the cows out there to graze on their own. Um, I mean, what did you guys do before you had the hay dryer? I mean, what how did you how did you get the hay for the cattle then? Well, we we purchased all our feed uh, before then, so um, you know we were buying uh, dry hay from uh, Quebec primarily, and from uh, from our neighbors. You know, Quebec isn't that far from us; it's like no, it is miles. So. <laughs> it seems far away when you get with, yeah. without that, but you're up there, so yeah, we're we're way up here, um, and um, you know, 
different years that uh, presented like a significant expense uh, to, for our business. Um, you know, so we're able to control quality in um, in a way that uh, we we've never been able to, and we can also manage our our cost as well. You know, um, the the uh, feed that we put up this past summer, it's the rainiest summer we've seen in a long time, yeah. um, is is the most beautiful uh, hay we've ever seen. And um, I guess my point is that, to some extent, you know, you can't pay for the kind of feed that we're, we're producing now. So it's, it's pretty exciting. That's uh, awesome. That's just benefits all around. I mean, you, you pay less and you get a better product. You can't really, uh, you can't really ask for much more than that. That's, no, we're psyched, yeah. We're that's psyched. awesome. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then uh, we're going to come back and talk to Mateo a little bit more. Thanks a lot. The dairy farm families of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board are proud to underwrite Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 170 years of quality and craftsmanship. During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. Cider Week helps to bring profitability to local orchards while reviving heirloom apple varieties by cultivating awareness of craft cider. Cider Week connects cider makers from New York State and select pioneering guest cideries outside the state to buyers from top restaurants, bars, and retail shops across New York City. Those culinary tastemakers, in turn, help increase consumer awareness of cider's pleasures by hosting public events, tastings, dinners, classes, and pairings that build appreciation and demand for regional ciders. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. We're talking to Matteo Keeler of Jasper Hill. If you have any comments or questions about anything we're talking about today, be sure to comment on our show page at heritageradionetwork.org. Uh, as we heard in the first half of the show, it's pretty common, even during summer months, to supplement a herd's grass-based diet with a grain in order to, ba- to balance both cow nutrition and the ultimate milk quality. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about something else. I want to talk about GMOs and how the increased desire nationally for labeling of GMO ingredients is affecting cheesemakers. Um, for those of you who don't know, GMOs or genetically modified organisms are living organisms whose genetic material have been manipulated in a lab through genetic engineering. Uh, companies like Whole Foods committing to labeling all products made with GMO ingredients by 2018 This is certainly going to have an impact on the cheese industry, like in cases where farmers are using GMO feed to supplement their animals' diets. Uh, Just for context, more than 90% of corn and soy today are now genetically engineered in the States. So, Mateo, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your decision to source non-GMO rations for your animals and the challenges in getting there. Well, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, I think it's, 
it's uh, been incredibly complicated uh, to like figure out how um, to manage a transition. Um, the fact of the matter is that the the real costs of genetic engineering haven't really been realized. I think you know what what we're experiencing is that there are all these identity preserved supply chains. That's what they're called. Uh, identity-preserved supply chains that are going to need to be uh, built in order to connect the seed that goes in the ground uh, through, you know, the entire value chain uh, right to the end consumer. And the amount of uh, traceability, the testing, the costs associated with that are going to be staggering for our economy over the next uh, 10 years. It's... uh, so, you know, when we, we started at this, we went and asked our feed mill if they'd be willing to sell us a non-GMO, um, you know, ration, and they laughed at us. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, you know, we internally uh, made the decision um, based on, you know, um, having our fingers on the pulse of where uh, the the market is going to a large extent, um, and also seeing the impacts of GMO corn specifically in our community. Um, you know, it's uh, ten years ago. There's nobody growing corn up here in northern Vermont, right. and at this point, you know, um, you know, the small farms are all disappearing. Uh, larger farms are moving in, milking a lot more cows than um, you know the the land traditionally could could have uh, handled and they're able to do that because they they can grow uh, their vari- these varieties of corn um, you know it's not the genetic engineering uh, that we have an issue with per se um, I think that there are lots of opportunities uh, for really awesome application of that technology uh, what's what's difficult is engineering seeds that enable like mass application of like herbicides. Yeah, we did. We... Um, yeah, and so you know we're we're coming at this from uh, from uh, both like an an ethical uh, place and from an you know uh, pragmatic uh, economic uh, place and. Um, what we ended up doing is going out and designing uh, and costing out a feed mill and working out like the logistics for getting train car quantities of non-GMO grain delivered to uh, Vermont. And, you know, uh, thank goodness we haven't had to do that. Um, we were able to persuade uh, Morrison's Custom Feeds, it's, uh, the, really the only organic uh, supplier of grains in northern Vermont here, uh, to to give it uh, a shot. And, you know, it's fascinating because it's not that the non-GMO grain isn't out there, because it is, and it's trading at uh, similar prices, slightly more expensive than, like, conventional GMO uh, grains uh, on commodity markets. Uh, It's the distribution to the farm level that doesn't exist, right? So um, basically, you know... Where does um, it go then? I mean, what what do you mean by that? Oh, right. So uh, the U.S. produces uh, tons of non-GMO grains. They're all being exported, right? That's, yeah, of course. Right, so they're they're going down on the Mississippi River. They're going uh, north up uh, to the St. Lawrence, and they're going to Europe 
and uh, China. They're going all over the world. We're, we're producing lots of uh, non-GMO grain. It's just that uh, the processing and distribution to the farm level doesn't, it's not there. Can it be there, or is it just something that hasn't happened yet, or is there is it just economics in the way of that? Um, so you know, uh, we're we're part of uh, a, a, a working group that's looking at this problem uh, on a supply chain wide basis, and it's going to take uh, you know five to ten years to shift the supply chain, um, and to a large extent, um, you know, the costs are going uh, in dairy are going to be associated with having to segregate milk within you know a cheese plant so you're going to have like uh, trucks uh, driving past one farm picking up milk at a non-gmo farm then driving past three more farms and picking up milk and then bringing it back to a plant where it has to have its own silo and it has to be processed separately from everything else in the plant so you know the co-ops are looking at uh, at this and going, you know, oh my God, how are we going to like deal with this? It's a lot to manage, thing? dude. Yeah, and the farmers are all the farmers are all going. What you're you're going to take away my my technology over my dead body? You know, uh, we're sure. living in a in a time where commodity milk prices are just terrible, and so uh, you know these these GMO these traded seeds are are they they have real benefits for the farmer. They're very convenient to grow. Um, and so I don't know how this is all going to work out. For us, we've been able to uh, source um, a, like non-GMO uh, verified ingredients and have them uh, uh, turned into, you know, uh, uh, pellets at, at a mill and delivered to our farm. And so we started that transition in, in July. And um, uh, we don't grow any cor- corn or feed any corn, so uh, we're basically a grass-based, you know, uh, dairy otherwise. And so uh, for us, this transition is, is, is more simple than uh, a farmer that's actually relying on, on corn or corn silage as part of their ration. Sure. And just to speak to what, what you said about just the environmental impact or just just, a, a, just made me think of, about – the last time I traveled to Italy, uh, which wasn't this wasn't this year for Brow, was the last time, and I was I was up north in, in Piedmont. And I hadn't been there in a, a few years, and it just seemed like every pasture, everything that I went by was was a cornfield now. You know, like I I don't know if that was part of what you're talking about, but I just I noticed it, and it was just pretty stark, you know. And I asked the guy who I was with, I was like, "So what the heck is this all about?" And he was like, "Yeah, it's all corn, and it's all for fuel." You know, he was. He, <laughs> I was like, yeah. "Corn is just, dude. Corn is everywhere, man. It's very for it is. It, yeah, it's it's really taking over. Um, you know, and uh, our our issue is really with Roundup specifically. Sure, it's. It's uh, it's the herbicide uh, that's that's basically sprayed to kill um, all the like grass and uh, underlying vege- vegetation to support uh, to support that that corn. Um, you know, in BT corn in in the south, you know, uh, you couldn't grow uh, corn some years in the southern United States without a genetically modified uh, seed that uh, allows a plant to express. Uh, you know, a toxin, and it used to be, you know, you'd, you'd spray uh, 
uh, chemicals on the outside of the plant. Now they've engineered them so that they can actually express a toxin in every cell of the plant. And I I, I don't know. I think that over the next few years, we're going to see the science catch up to the technology. And I wouldn't be surprised if if, uh, there there does turn out to be some consequences um, from a health perspective to the introduction of some of some of these seeds. But it sounds like it just sounds like what you're saying is that there's there's a more it's it's less about the inherent danger of genetically modified organisms in terms of the health of humans and a lot about the environmental impact of using them it seems to me but that's but I mean would you say that's pretty accurate or Yeah, I, you know um I think that the science at this point is inconclusive right. on on the health uh, on the you know the the animal and human health, uh, but it's been hard because uh, these the, there's uh, intellectual property uh, restrictions on independent research, um, you know on on some of these uh, traded, um, on, you know on some of the genes that are sure. uh, in, inserted and and the con- consequences there, and I think that you know one of the issues is that. Um, we don't know what we don't know, and uh, in this country, our uh, approach, whether it's you know leaded gasoline or DDT or you know uh, different versions of birth control over over the years, is to embrace the technology and then allow the science to, like to catch up and the consequences to become apparent, and then the regulation kicks in. And, you know, that's the way that we regulate technology in this country, and we'll see, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens uh, with, uh, you know, some of these uh, genetically modified organisms, you know, over the next few years as, as the science really starts to, like, peel back uh, the layers, so to speak. So uh, is the price of your cheese going to go up because of all this? Um, it is. Um, our, our, we figure that it costs us about um, almost four dollars per hundred pounds of milk um, in increased cost um, of, of, of the grain. So there's there's a, a slight reduction in the yield in the and there's a, a pretty significant increase in the cost. And we translate that into uh, per pound. Uh, increase that um, is we we figure is going to be somewhere between forty and fifty cents a pound. Wow! Uh, so we started increasing our price this past uh, uh, July when we we started feeding the grain, and um, we're trying to make it incremental in in such a way. And ultimately, the question is uh, how how badly do consumers want yeah. you know non GMO uh, products? Are they willing to support uh, the the increased uh, expense in 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 bringing these practices um, into you know uh, onto onto counters. That's really what's, what it was. I was going to say is like it really is going to be up to our all of our customers to put their money where their mouth is because everybody wants to be responsible or or I feel like you know people always want to be responsible, but it hits you in the wallet pretty hard, man. I mean, it's really easy to eat and to make cheap and irresponsibly constructed food products in this country. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so much easier than to make real food, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, um, this is the first time we've kind of waded into any kind of labeling or or claim. Right. Like on the label. And our, our angle has always been, you know, 
quality. And, you know, right. um, we, we're not a low-cost producer. Yep. Um, you know, it's, it's unclear that, you know, this non-GMO uh, artisan cheese is going to taste any better than uh, it did before. Uh, but it is going to be a little more expensive. And, um, you know, for that reason, we're doubling down on, on quality and trying to make our cheeses as delicious as they've, as they've ever been because ultimately we've, we believe that's, that's the only angle we really have. Yeah, and I'm I'm with you on that, and uh, they are as a retailer. Your products they're they're better than ever, man. So thanks a lot for that. You you, you guys you guys kicking ass as usual. So you know, <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, uh, you know, for coming on the show today and spending a little time with us. I really totally appreciate it, and um, you know, uh, you know, if you guys uh, out there want to weigh in on this, please go to our show page and comment. Um, I want you all to stay tuned next week. We'll be back you know, for more Cutting the Curd. Thanks a lot, Mateo. And uh, everybody Thank have you, a good Greg. night. Yeah, man. Take care. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.